Is everybody ready for a show? Yes. Where is everybody? Welcome to Filmy Girls Idolcast. Hit it! Dirty pop. Sick inside of him and all these people talk about. What's the deal with this pop life and when is it gonna fade out? The thing you got to realize we're doing is not a trip. We got the gift of melody, we're gonna bring it till the end. opening song today was InSync's Pop, taken from their Pop Odyssey tour DVD, recorded on tour during the summer of 2001. If you haven't listened to InSync since you were in middle school, or if you've never listened to them for some reason, take a moment right now, pause here, go and buy their fourth and final album, Celebrity, released July 21st, 2001, and listen to it. I'll wait. The album is a pop masterpiece. I vividly remember when it came out, and not because I was a teeny bopper pasting pictures of Joey Fatone in my locker. In 2001, I was in the middle of my audio engineering degree, and my audio nerd friends and I were geeking out over how well-crafted it was. Celebrity was produced by the well-known electronica artist BT, and songs like the album cut Do Your Thing sparkled like jewels. Each individual sound each individual voice slotted perfectly into place. I mean, BT was the guy known for time-correcting rain. Perfection was his baseline, and that precision sound, combined with the very human voices and passions of the five NSYNC members, led to an album of the highest quality pop music. Truly a masterpiece of the genre. Waiting for your piece of the pie to drop out of the sky Gotta go get it Hesitating for somebody else to run and pass you by There ain't no excuse for losing your feet Drowning in your defeat on this road of life There ain't no excuse for coming up short The ball is in your court So reach up and touch the sky Keeping 
Notice I didn't say that the album was a boy band masterpiece, although NSYNC are considered a boy band. And that's because in today's episode, I wanted to dive a little deeper into what I like to call boy band studies and expand a bit on the post I wrote a few weeks ago that attempted to untangle the differences between Western style boy bands and Asian idol groups and why there is such confusion when it comes to classifying and contextualizing boy bands in general and BTS in particular. In this episode, I'll attempt to shine a light on the boy band construct and help separate the hysteria from the music, good, bad, and crushingly mediocre. You look like a girl from Abercrombie and Fitch. New kids on the block, had a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. And I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer, for the summer. I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. I take her if I have one dish. But she's been gone since that summer, since yeah. that summer. Cherry pants, cold crush To kick off this episode, let's start with some basic definitions. What is a boy band? Here's my definition. If the band members are marketed in such a way that their first names appear with an exclamation point on the covers of magazines like Tiger Beat, and teen girls are encouraged to paste pictures of Paul, exclamation point, or Les, exclamation point, in their school notebooks, and hang pinups of John, exclamation point, or Simon, exclamation point, in their lockers, then congratulations, you're a boy band. To be a boy band is to participate in the teen girl economy. Hit at the right time with a generation of young teen girls and reap the benefits for at least two or three years, no matter the actual quality of the music. From Beatlemania to Bandom, it's simply a fact that teen girls love 1. Cute guys 2. Cute guys who are friends and 3. Cute guys who are friends who also play music together. And honestly, who can blame them? I emphasize the exclamation point names because despite the attempts of copious boy band Svengali's, boy band members are not plug and play. The charms of each individual member of a boy band are extremely important. If your group doesn't have a Joey exclamation point or a Davey exclamation point, then it will be destined for the scrap heap. Try and try and try as they might. There's a reason that the rotating member concept pioneered by Menudo Svengali, Edgardo Diaz, never truly caught on. Girls don't want any old pretty face hanging on their bedroom wall. They want Davy Jones's specific pretty face. And woe be upon any boy band manager who doesn't understand this. And speaking of Svengali's, let me just take a moment right here to state up front that most, if not all, of the boy band managers I'll be mentioning in this episode have had allegations of sexual abuse, sexual assault, physical abuse, financial mismanagement, emotional abuse, um, and many other things leveled against them. And these are very serious crimes, and I want to make sure listeners know that while this episode will not be dwelling on these charges, I am very aware of them. If you'd like more information, the articles, the tell-all memoirs, and in some cases, court documents are available, and they make for some truly harrowing reading. Another thing to keep in mind through all of this is that many of the boys in these bands come from very modest upbringings, 
and they worked their asses off to earn their places on the stage. Country boy Kevin Richardson had been working two jobs to support himself, including, famously, playing Aladdin at Disney World, when he joined the Backstreet Boys. Mike Nesmith had shown up at the LA casting call for the Monkees, owning little else but his guitar and his attitude. The boys and the new kids on the block and the Bay City Rollers were from blue-collar, working-class families. Many of these boys were thrust into high-pressure situations, financial, emotional. These situations were completely outside of their or their parents' experience. Additionally, many of them were also very young when they started out. Joey McIntyre was 12 when he joined NKOTB. Michael Jackson was younger than that when his father was taking him and his brothers to play four shows a night in Chicago. While you were worried about whether or not you'd pass your 8th grade English, these boys had major financial stakes and sometimes even their family's well-being resting on whether or not they could master a piece of choreography or learn to mime playing the guitar convincingly. These are pieces of the puzzle that are often lost when discussing these bands, so I wanted to flag them right up front. Boy bands and their fans have been unfairly maligned since the dawn of the genre. Critics turned off by the hysterical fans were unable to understand the appeal of, like, a really cute guy singing a song to you. Dismiss anything with even the slightest whiff of boy band about it as complete garbage music. In order to counteract this critical disdain, in recent years there has been an attempt to rehabilitate the reputation of the much maligned boy band. The prevailing counterargument is one part poptimism, one part third wave feminism, and one part PR flack flattering fans that actually teen girls have excellent taste in music and didn't you know that rocktivist critical darlings the Beatles were a boy band? Please like and subscribe. Personally, I think both takes are wrong. One of the funniest anecdotes I came across in researching for this episode was when the monkeys got Jimi Hendrix to open for them on a nationwide tour. Whatever you think of dad rock. Jimi Hendrix was an incredible guitarist and performer, which is why the Monkees invited him to tour with them. But when Hendrix played Foxy Lady in front of the hordes of Monkees fans, they shouted back Foxy Davy. Obviously, just because teen girls like a band doesn't mean that the band or the music is bad. But the teen girls who flock unmasked to boy bands are not doing so because of the music. And that's an important distinction to make. To fully appreciate a boy band means being able to put yourself in the hormone-soaked shoes of a 14-year-old girl who is feeling a lot of really heavy capital F feelings. It means giving yourself over fully to Dionysus and drinking deep of the erotic cocktail provided by these handsome young men, their tight trousers, and their hip thrusting choreography. In the classic 1987 book, Remaking Love, written by Barbara Ehrenreich, Elizabeth Hess, and Gloria Jacobs, the authors revisit Beatlemania and try to give voice to the young fans and the romantic appeal of a male idol. For young women in that restrictive pre-free love era, a real-world romance carried with it a heavy element of danger, of navigating strict social conventions around purity, of being trapped into marriage and motherhood before you were ready. When you were in love with a male idol, all of that fell away. As the authors explain it, quote, 
the star could be loved non-instrumentally for his own sake and with complete abandon. To publicly advertise this hopeless love was to protest the calculated, pragmatic sexual repression of teenage life. Unquote. And as a bonus, quote, there was the more immediate satisfaction of knowing, subconsciously, that the Beatles were who they were because girls like oneself had made them that. And the louder you screamed, the less likely anyone would forget the power of the fans. When the screams drowned out the music, as they invariably did, then it was the fans, and not the band, who were the show. Unquote. Love and power, the fundamental ingredients of the erotic cocktail served up by boy bands. Obviously, as times have changed, the forces that teen girls are rebelling against have changed. But I believe that Ehrenreich et al. hit the nail on the head with the underlying diagnosis. These are boys we love with complete abandon, and our screams are both a celebration of that love and the weapon that we wield to control them. Here is the thesis I want to put across. While many all-male singing and dancing music groups can be considered boy bands, it is not the act of singing and dancing that makes them boy bands. Singing and dancing makes them pop groups. It is the marketing and the way that fans interact with these bands that make them boy bands. It is that love with complete abandonment. We stood around the years See my smiles and touched my tears Now it's been a long, long time And now you've been on my mind My apples cost Apples cost Apples cost How I love you How I love you When you're inside the bubble, it's impossible to objectively judge the quality of the art being produced, because the quality doesn't matter to the fans in that moment. It doesn't matter if it sucks. It doesn't matter if you're making groundbreaking pop masterpieces. What matters is that right here, right now, young fans feel that the music is meaningful to them personally. And that is something which cannot be captured in an objective music review. To quote K-Punk himself, Mark Fisher, in a post from 2004, 
discussing the then-current drought in pop music. Quote, A year or so down the track, when the gleam of success and publicity and shiny contemporaneity has left the records, when time performs a reverse alchemy, transforming commercial dominance into unsaleable car boot sale fodder, that is when the error of our ways is revealed. Unquote. To go back to the example at the top of the episode, InSync were a boy band, yes, but they were also an excellent pop group who were constantly pushing the boundaries of what was possible and taking their fans with them. A song like Bye 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 remains a classic, not just because of middle-aged nostalgia, but because it was a well-crafted song with catchy visuals and InSync nailed the emotionally charged performance. InSync were both a boy band and an excellent pop group. The Beatles film, A Hard Day's Night, has stood the test of time as a comedic masterpiece. And also a huge part of its appeal is how cute and funny the Beatles were in 1964. The Beatles were a foundational rock group, and many of their screaming female fans could not have cared less what they were playing. It's when the dust clears and the teen girls move on to college that we find out who will be discarded in car boot sales. Or to throw it back to episode 24, who ends up in the Sugar Ray section of the used CD store. So let's start with the Beatles and the 1964 British Invasion. Despite the retroactive rewriting of the British Invasion to highlight critical darlings like the Kinks and the Rolling Stones, the three biggest sellers of the British Invasion in America were the Beatles, Herman's Hermits, and the Dave Clark Five. All three of them were boy bands. Here they come again, mm -hmm. catch us if you can, mm -hmm. time to get a move on. The Beatles are now widely regarded as the first boy band, and for good reason. The previous generations of teens had dreamboat solo stars like Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra, but there were four Beatles which meant that you could pick your favorite and debate the pros and cons of marrying each one with the girls in your first period class. Trust me, having been a teen Beatles fanatic, albeit 35 years or so after the initial wave of Beatlemania, I have an intimate understanding of the group's appeal. John Lennon, the snarky one with hidden emotional depths. Paul McCartney, the cute romantic one. George Harrison, quiet and earnest. The dark horse choice for girls who are a little offbeat. My fave, Natch and then lovable Ringo for girls who could not resist an underdog. Here is the bare-bones recap of the group's history for the uninitiated. The Beatles were a cheeky, skivel band turned filthy hot R&B bar band from Liverpool who moved to London, were cleaned up and repackaged into a cheerful guitar group for wholesome mainstream teen consumption. They became popular in their native England in the early 60s, and then in 1964, wrote a wave of shrieking teen hysteria to America and beyond. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Will make me feel 
By 1966, exhausted and increasingly aware of their own exploitation, they exited the teen dream and retreated to the studio, started their own record label, bickered over creative direction, made some masterpieces of 60s rock, passive-aggressively bickered some more, and then they broke up. It was a combination of market forces, timing, and the Beatles' own chemistry that sparked their boy band boom. Rock and roll hysteria had been bubbling under for a few years, with Bill Haley in his comments sparking teen riots, yes really, in the late 1950s with the rebellious sounds of rock around the clock. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat bags on. Add in the skyrocketing market of cheap 45 RPM singles, perfect for teenagers with limited pocket money, a boom in teen-oriented radio, and a nation looking for a cheerful distraction in the wake of the assassination of President Kennedy. And the groundwork was perfectly laid for the cheeky, super cute, super exotic mop tops from UK to conquer America. And in a trend that we'll see repeated again and again, the Beatles' irreverent and humorous responses to dumb questions from the media were breathlessly transcribed and discussed. Are you individually millionaires yet? No, that's another lousy rumor. I wish you were. Brian Epstein a millionaire. No, even he's not one, poor fellow. Where does all the money go? Well, a lot of it goes to Her Majesty. <clears throat> <laughs> She's a millionaire. <laughs> Their long hair and suits were copied and parodied from coast to coast. TV shows of the era feature plenty of outraged or simply baffled adults in the face of shaggy-haired groups called things like The Bugs, singing unintelligible lyrics while girls screamed wildly. Singing Beatles, huh? Well, let me know if Miss Jean finds them. I'd pay a quarter to see that myself. <laughs> You're still... They're like... Uh... Well, never mind. I, I saw a picture of them and I'm... Still confused. <laughs> What's remarkable about the Beatles is that their real impact on popular music happened despite the fact that they were a boy band. Not because of it. The Beatles with producer George Martin helped usher in one of my favorite eras in pop music in the mid to late 60s. The blending of high octane rock with classical music. I had a date with a pretty ballerina. pioneering use of new multi-track recorders which allowed for a crisper and cleaner sound that simply had not been possible when Phil Spector was working on his wall of pop soundscapes a few years earlier. Bands used to record essentially live in the studio, but the Beatles pioneered and popularized recording techniques that really broadened the idea of what was possible. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream it is not dying. It is 
want to emphasize this last point because I think it gets lost when well-meaning critics attempt to claw back the Beatles as just another boy band. If you look at the teen magazines of the mid-60s when the Beatles were at peak boy band. It's immediately clear that the Beatles were only one of a horde of popular boy bands. The other two that I mentioned before, Herman's Hermits and the DC Five, in particular gave the Beatles real competition. The Beatles love tragedies and a thousand and one facts you didn't know migrated from the front covers of Sixteen and Dig and into the sober classic rock history section of the bookstore because the Beatles deliberately broke from their teeny bopper image. They took a gamble with the groundbreaking album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it worked. Their artistic impact would live on far, far, far beyond boy band, even if it was the boy band adoration that made them into superstars. Meanwhile, if you want to know what Herman's Hermit's love secrets were, then you have to read the December 1965 issue of Sixteen where they remain buried alongside the 50 flipped out picks. And that's not to say that Herman's Hermits and the DC-5 didn't have some killer bops, because they did. But fairly or not, both groups remain consigned to the boy band garbage heap, written out of the British invasion and erased from popular memory. And as the Beatles were attempting to shed the vestiges of their teeny bopper image, over in Hollywood, California, the first attempt to manufacture a boy band was getting underway. The idea was to create an American, TV-based version of the Beatles-style screwball comedy that had won girls' hearts in a hard day's night. Here we come, walk down the street, we get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around, but we're too busy singing to put anybody down. It would be targeted at girls who were too young for the scent of marijuana that was wafting off the Beatles' new songs. This new band would advertise the songs through the show and advertise the show through their songs. And plus, there was all that delicious boy band merchandising just waiting to be plucked. This was going to be a groundbreaking exercise in cross-promotional marketing. The casting call went out. Quote, Madness. Auditions. Folk and rock musicians dash singers for acting roles in new TV series. Running parts for four insane boys age 17 to 21. Want spirited Ben Franks types. Have courage to work. Must come down for interview. Unquote. A reference long forgotten, Ben Franks was a diner on Sunset Strip known for being a hip hangout spot for the kind of young people who needed a cup of coffee and a groovy place to, like, have a rap session at 2am. Legend has it that Buffalo Springfield formed in the parking lot of Ben Franks. Frank Zappa used to hang out there.
Of the four members of this new manufactured American Beatles, two were show business ringers, and two were Ben Frank's types. Davy Jones, the pint-sized English dreamboat, had been nominated for a Tony Award for his performance as the artful Dodger in Oliver, another now-forgotten product of the British invasion. And actually, he made his debut on The Ed Sullivan Show on the very same episode as The Beatles did in February 1964. Davy was charming, with a big toothy smile and a soft brown proto-Cassidy shag haircut. The twinkle in his eye could, and did, slay all women within a 50-foot radius. Mickey Dolenz was another former child star, but of television rather than stage. He had warm eyes, a goofy sense of humor, and an expressive, soulful singing voice that added just the right amount of teen angst to proto-punk songs like I'm Not Your Steppin' Stone. Mickey radiated approachable friend-of-your-older-brother energy, and it's no surprise that he and Davy were the most popular members when the show was on air. Peter Tork, an intellectually-minded banjo player well-known around the Greenwich Village scene, was recommended to the Monkees producers after his friend Stephen Stills, yes, that Stephen Stills, was turned down for not being cute enough for television. Uh, we're looking for someone like you, but like, cuter? He gave them Peter's name. And Peter Tork was cute. He had shaggy, strawberry blonde hair and a winning boy-next-door smile. His role in the monkeys was as the dopey and perpetually stoned, but good-hearted, goofball. The shaggy to Mike Nesmith's Fred. Peter was the monkey whose stage persona was probably the furthest away from his actual personality. And then there was Mike Nesmith. Tall, dark, handsome, with a honey-sweet Texan drawl, and perpetually seen wearing a woolen hat. Mike was both the brains of the fictional monkeys on the television show, and the loudest agitator for creative freedom behind the scenes. While most of the group's material was written by a stable of extremely talented songwriters, Neil Diamond, Boyce and Hart, Goffin and King. From the beginning, Mike was always pitching songs, and to his credit, he was responsible for quite a few B-sides and album tracks, as well as writing for other groups, like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Mike was the Thinking Girl's favorite monkey. Hey, hey, mercy woman plays a song and no one listens, I need help, I'm falling again. Play the drum a little louder, tell me I can live the louder if I only listen to the band. Listen to the band. Weren't they good that made me happy? I think I can make it alone. Unlike the Beatles, who spent a hard day's night trying to escape from their hordes of fans, the fictional monkeys were underdogs, beach bums, always hunting for their big break. The monkeys played Sweet Sixteen parties and auditioned for producers. In real life, they were selling out arenas. Given the nickname of the Prefab Four, a take on the Beatles nickname, the Fab Four, the monkeys would never escape their manufactured roots. And despite their great personal charms as entertainers, their top quality discography 
and the fact that they actually could play their own instruments, thank you very much. The monkeys would be ridiculed and unfairly made a punchline of for decades. And the reasons for this are the same as those which face boy bands to follow. Critics simply do not understand or appreciate the talent that it takes to be the monkeys. The monkeys used the same session musicians, the same songwriters, the same producers as groups who have been retroactively canonized as rock legends like the birds. But the monkeys were never able to shake that manufactured boy band gloss and it wasn't for lack of trying. The prefab four demanded and received artistic freedom, but the alchemy that held together the Ben Frank side with the old-fashioned showbiz razzle-dazzle side began to fray, and personalities began to clash, and that sharp teen pop of their early albums gave way to the meta meanderings of Head, and the Monkeys Project eventually collapsed in on itself. You say we manufactured, to that we all agree. So make your choice and we'll rejoice in never being free. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys, we've said it all before. The money's in, we're made of tin, we're here to give you more. The money's in, we're made of tin, we're here to give you- Rather than attempting to reclaim the monkeys as a serious rock band, they should be remembered for being incredible entertainers and makers of influential pop art. The television show remains extremely watchable and holds up far, far better than recent attempts at the genre. The monkeys are cute and they have great comic timing, a knack for slapstick, and they always deliver at least one killer jam per episode. They were completely authentic in their inauthenticity, putting a hell of a lot of heart and soul into a band whose primary function was to sell sugary cereal to kids. Unlike the much campier television bands that followed in their wake, the Monkees were not only aware of their status as a fake band, but actively tried to reclaim it. That their pivot to pop art ended up fizzling out doesn't mean that it was a worthless experiment. We would not remember the Monkees today if they actually were the puppets on a string they've been unfairly stereotyped as. It's no mistake that one Mr. David Jones, no relation to Davy Jones, Name-checked the monkeys when creating his own plastic band, David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars. As the 60s turned to the 70s, the next big thing in boy bands was a mini boom in family bands led by the Jackson 5. Oh, baby, 
the five Jackson brothers burst into both the pop charts and into teen girls' hearts with a string of number one hits produced by the Motown team known simply as the Corporation. Starting with I Want You Back, the Jackson 5's R&B bubblegum with that signature funky walking bass line was like nothing white America had ever heard before. And it launched a sea of imitators, including the Osmonds, a white family band from Utah who got their big break with a Jackson 5 cast off in late family groups included the DeFranco family from Canada and the Finger Five, the Tamamoto family from Okinawa, and of course the Silvers, who were the Jackson Five's main rival in black teen magazines. Jackson 5 were brothers Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, Marlon, and Michael, with the littlest brother Randy added a few years later. So the J5 began life as an R&B vocal group in the style of somebody like the Delphonics. But they were under Motown, and Motown boss Barry Gordy's big innovation in the 60s was to simplify and straighten out the R&B beat to sell to, uh, quote, Young America, aka White America. Motown vocal groups like The Temptations and The Supremes held their own against white vocal groups like The Mamas and the Papas and The Association on the mainstream charts. And so Barry Gordy, when he took his template into the 70s, he took the J5 and turned them into the first and only black boy band to really win the hearts of uh, young America. Now what set the J5 apart from previous Motown acts is that they were packaged and sold like a boy band on their image and their personality rather than as a pop group. Like the Monkees, the J5 were a band who used session musicians. And I will never forget my bass teacher telling me about the day he found out it wasn't really Jermaine playing those sick bass riffs. That would be Wilton Felder of the Jazz Crusaders.
The J5 story was mythologized. The members, like the Beatles and the monkeys before them, played a version of themselves in the public eye. There was even a Jackson 5 cartoon fictionalizing their home life. And, as an aside, uh, the cartoon by Rankin and Bass follows boy band tradition by trading in some extremely horny in plain sight double entendres. Uh, Michael has a pet snake that's pink. Uh-huh. Hey, stop leaning on my snake! Rosie, you come down now, hear? Why, what a brave little boy. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever autographed a snake. <laughs> I'm sorry I was afraid of him. I hope you and I can be friends, too. Miss Ross, that'd be a pleasure. The J5 songs and performances were the best that you'll see. But the boys themselves, except for charming youngest brother Randy, who joined the group later, were stiff and awkward on camera. And it became harder and harder to uphold the chaste, wholesome, brotherly love boy band image as one, the oldest boys married and had kids, and two, Michael was being groomed to go solo. By the time the group was venturing into early disco in like 1974-75, while they were still an active pop group, their boy band days were pretty much over. Tiger Beat doesn't feature DILFs. Still, the legacy of the J5 lives on. Their light R&B sound, as well as the choreographed dancing, became the standard template for pop vocal groups moving forward into the disco era and beyond. But one thing I found interesting watching old interviews is that not only were the J5 fighting against the same boy band stereotypes as a group like the Monkees, they were also being called to account for their popularity with, um, Young America. This passive-aggressive 1973 question from a Soul Train audience member is very telling. Yeah, I would like to know, I'm a big fan of yours, have you ever met the Osmonds and would you ever like to work with them, seeing that you're similar? Nah. Yeah. Sure, we've met the Osmonds before, and they're a very nice group, and um, matter of fact, we met them in Canada. It appeared to be a very nice group. Um, I think we better stick to our own thing. <laughs> Was there a bigger insult to one street cred than being compared to the white bread never tasted skim milk rosy cheeked Osmonds. It's a reminder that while the J5 had been rescued from the boy band scrap heap, the reality at the time was a lot more complicated. Also, the Osmonds kind of rule. The sun sets on the J5 photo spreads in the pages of Tiger Beat. From the council flats of Edinburgh, Scotland, comes the Bay City Rollers.
Parton mania swept the globe like only the Beatles had before them. The gimmick was simple. Combine the erotic appeal of a group of rough-and-tumble young men in tight trousers with the infectious pop music of legendary veteran songwriters Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, the team responsible for the song that became the very first UK winner of Eurovision. The result was electric. Like the Beatles, the BCR were an actual band before they became a boy band. The group began life as the Saxons, a popular local bar band out of Edinburgh. They snagged themselves a cooler, American-sounding name, the Bay City Rollers, and a record contract. But the group of 20-something rockers languished in middling popularity until singer Nobby Clark left and manager Tam Patton replaced him with baby-faced 18-year-old Les McCune and brought in the even younger 17-year-old guitarist Stuart Wood. They joined brothers Alan and Derek and guitarist Eric. And the result was boy band magic. This new BCR exploded onto the UK singles charts in 1974 with a song called Remember... Sha La La La, an easy breezy pop song written by Martin and Coulter that leaned heavily into the then ultra trendy 50s rock nostalgia boom, a sound that now seems impossibly dated but was all the rage at the time. And the lyrics are pure Eurovision camp in the best way possible. The immortal opening line, Shimmy, Shemmy, Shong, fits very comfortably alongside Sweden's winning a 1984 entry. Diggy Lou, Diggy Lay. Uh, also a boy band song, by the way. <laughs> the Netherlands 1975 winning entry, Ding a Dong. And the UK's own, Boom Bang a Bang. Watching performances from mid-70s BCR is like trying to make sense of a fever dream. The hysteria generated by the five tight-trousered, tartan-wearing, feathered-haired men feels completely at odds with the mid-tempo bubblegum they're playing. In true boy band fashion, the songs did not matter to the fans. All that mattered was Derek Allen Eric Lesson Woody. Derek Allen Eric, we love you. The BCR had enough drama, trauma, and infighting in those years when they were the most popular band in the world to fill a dozen episodes of VH1's Behind the Music. The boys were sexualized and put on display, shirtless and shaving cream. The girls could not get enough. 
Um, but the bubble finally burst during a 1978 tour of Japan when Les, convinced that the band was starting songs in the wrong key to fuck with him, got into a physical altercation with Woody on stage. The extra sad coda to the BCR story is that, much like other boy bands, the boys at the center of Tartan Mania were left with nothing to show for their troubles. For all the hard work, for all the shirtless photo shoots, nothing, nothing, nothing except empty pockets. Their money vanished. They would receive no royalties. And as the girls hung up their tartan jumpers and took down their posters, so too would the BCR vanish from popular memory. But their legacy lives on in an unexpected way. Legend has it that Dee Dee Ramone was inspired to write the famous Hey, ho, let's go chant that opens Blitzkrieg Bop after hearing the Rollers' mega hit Saturday Night. And that's not the only punk connection. When the kids raised on the earwormy, super simple garage rock via the cereal box, sung with youthful sass by guys like session vocalist Joey Levine and, yes, monkey Mickey Dolenz, when they grew up and started their own bands, they might have been singing about doing drugs and like fucking shit up, but their sugary influences were never far from the surface. I'm not your stepping stone. I'm not your stepping stone. In society, you're using all the tricks that you used on me. You're reading all them high fashion magazines, the clothes you're wearing, girl, that causing public scenes. I said, I. 
Yes, that's right. The Sex Pistols were assembled by Malcolm McLaren to be the Bay City Rollers, but like a counterculture version. Do you think it's a coincidence they were all that tartan? McLaren himself admitted to modeling the pistols on the rollers in 1980 as the whole project was falling apart, leaving aside the Eurovision-adjacent music sung by the rollers. What McLaren was after was that enthusiasm of the BCR's young teen audiences. He wanted hordes of teens dressed not in their plaid roller trousers from the local high street, but in plaid pistols trousers from his boutique, Sex. Unfortunately for McLaren, in selecting lead singer John Lydon, aka Johnny Rotten, he ended up with a talent far more like the razor-sharp and combative monkey Mike Nesmith than the starry-eyed, golden-voiced roller Les McCune. Like Nesmith before him, Rotten led the fight for the group's creative freedom, and then later over the band's image, as well as in absolute classic boy band fashion, suing McLaren for not paying the band fairly. The original Sex Pistols pinups not available in Tiger Beat, but soon to be available in Teeny Bopper Music Rag Smash Hits, were the aforementioned vocalist Johnny Rotten, handsome bad boy guitarist Steve Jones, drummer Paul Cook, and bassist Glenn Matlock, who would eventually be swapped out for bassist Sid Vicious, who in classic boy band fashion could not actually play the bass. But he was sexier and fit the band image much better than Matlock, who Rotten claimed saw the group as, quote, a camp version of the Bay City Rollers, unquote. Fair enough, mate. And who unforgivably had been heard sticking up for the least cool Beatle, Paul McCartney. After gaining a cult following by word of mouth, the unruly boys snagged a major label contract with EMI and then broke through into the public consciousness after the national tabloid spent days gleefully making hay of an incident where the punk rockers swore on television. Much like the Beatles, the Sex Pistols gave great interview. They're a group called the Sex Pistols. I am told that that group have received £40,000 from a record company. Doesn't that seem uh, to be slightly opposed to their anti-materialistic view of life? Uh, Really? Oh, yeah. Well, tell me more about it. I don't know, have you? Yeah, so good. Is there anything so appealing to young teens as a band that annoys the fuck out of each and every authority figure? And it didn't hurt that wrote excellent tunes. Pistols' narrative has been retroactively massaged to end with Rotten leaving the band in 1978, the reality is that the Sex Pistols' highest-selling single, by far, was the post-Rotten double A-side, Something Else slash Friggin' in the Riggin', which sold almost 400,000 copies. In particular, the now incredibly dated-sounding Friggin' in the Riggin' was a schoolyard smash with its cheekily naughty nautical lyrics. Hold on, give it some. Money. 
listen to any young ones listening to this that big sales do not indicate quality, nor do they guarantee a lasting legacy. The Sex Pistols story I'm telling ends with meta boy band film The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, a mockumentary masterminded by McLaren, casting himself as the great punk rock impresario, swindling fans of their hard-earned cash in exchange for a piece of plastic containing, as director Julian Temple put it, quote, two hit singles and a mountain of crud, unquote. The Great Rock and Roll Swindle was an attempt to make explicit the cynical Bay City Rollers roots at the heart of the Sex Pistols project. It did not work. John Lydon's song, Public Image, was the way McLaren would be remembered. I'm not the same as when I began. I will not be treated as property. While the film and McLaren ultimately failed at claiming ownership of the Pistols' legacy, the punk rollers and their safety pin tartan trousers left a lasting legacy on pop music with New Wave, as New Wave began its rise in the charts on the back of those same tween fans, and soon New Wave would appear side by side with cartoon and real-life boy band Kiss, yes, Kiss was in Tiger Beat, but the biggest boy band of them all of this early 80s rock era was Duran Duran. And Duran Duran are really the last of the great rock boy bands. Although boy bands that were rock bands would live on in kind of zombie form for the next few decades, none would ever reach the giddy, glossy, image over substance heights of Duran Duran. As John Taylor put it in a 1986 issue of Tiger Beat, quote, Originally, Duran Duran was to have been a cross between the Sex Pistols and Chic, but somehow we got overproduced and packaged." Unquote. Duran Duran were the ultimate 1980s MTV pretty boy boy band. Truly the monkeys TV show walked so that the Pistols great rock and roll swindle could run. And Duran Duran's music videos could take you back to the hotel to fuck. Their videos were groundbreaking. Mini films packed full of exotic locations, action, adventure, beautiful women, and of course the extremely handsome members of Duran Duran themselves with their feathered hair, award-winning smiles, and shoulder pads as wide as the ocean. They were built to fuel the daydreams of romantic teen girls who longed to be swept off their feet and out of their boring suburban lives. And it didn't hurt that the songs were absolute killer bops. Johnny Rotten Attitude layered on top of chic bass lines. Please, please tell me now Is there something I should know Is there something I should say That'll make you come my
Girls on Film, Rio, Hungry Like the Wolf. These are songs that feel as vital and fresh today as they did when they were released 40 years ago. In early interviews, Duran Duran come across as like regular lads down the pub, like your older brothers, just like cool friends. The dangerous sex, drugs, and rock and roll image was just an image until it wasn't. And the group took an open-ended break in 1984, appearing increasingly out of place, too old, too dangerous for the teen magazines. But the teen magazines had nobody to replace them with. Nobody, that is, until five white boys from Boston danced their way into our collective hearts. And I'm going to take a brief detour here to mention Menudo, the Puerto Rican boy band now remembered for exactly two things. One, Ricky Martin. Two, Edgardo Diaz's rotating member concept in which boys were cast aside when they got too old. Menudo are an interesting case study because they are probably the closest antecedent to BTS in American boy band history. So Menudo were formed in Puerto Rico in 1977 by Diaz as sort of an all-male version of La Pandilla, the Spanish kids group he had been working with. Menudo became successful first in Puerto Rico and then through sort of the broader Spanish-speaking Latin American region. And they even inspired creation of a rival group, the far superior, if you ask me, um, Los Chicos. And as an aside to the aside, let me tell you, the video of Los Chicos singing Será Porque Te Llamo on long-running El Show de Mediodía on Televisión Dominicana, please do not mock my Spanish, in 1983 is one of the greatest pieces of boy band performance ever captured on film. Future Latin superstar Cheyenne is unflappable as security tries and fails to hold back the screaming girls. Every few seconds, one escapes from the pack to fling herself at him before she's manhandled off set, and he never misses a beat. It is amazing. The early 80s saw crooner Julio Iglesias have some major crossover success with mainstream, aka white, America, and record companies immediately hopped on the bandwagon, hoping to uncover the next Julio. 
So this right here is the era that's responsible for the wonderful and, you know, genuinely popular crossover acts like Gloria Estefan, um, as well as Los Lobos. Um, but Menudo, on the other hand, well, it wasn't for the lack of trying. They were snapped up by RCA, who pushed them hard because there were no other boy bands, especially for girls too young for Duran Duran and the other new wave acts. So Menudo made it into magazines like Tiger Beat, and they even had a short-run television show on ABC. Menudo on ABC. Menudo on ABC. Menudo on Next Saturday, this new Menudo song can be seen immediately following the best of Scooby-Doo on ABC. But the campy song and dance routines, along with the costumes that could have come directly from the sets of the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, just were not doing it for mainstream America's tween girls in the 80s. And Menudo quickly faded from popular memory until Ricky Martin taught us how to shake our bonbons in 1999. Now, black American teens and tweens, on the other hand, were happily pinning up pages from Right On magazine to their bedroom walls, thanks to Boston's own. Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, Mike, Ralph, and Johnny, otherwise known as New Edition. Because they were the new addition of the Jackson 5, the young teens caught the eye of writer-producer all-time legend Maurice the General Starr at a Boston talent show that he hosted, and he helped launch the group to stardom with their first single, Candy Girl, released February 24th, 'n and Candy Girl was to bring kids music back to the radio. Teens and tweens are a reliable pop music loving demographic and Marie Starr clearly sensed that there was a big opening in the market. The single and the album of the same name were hits, getting to number one on the American Hot Black Singles chart and not doing too shabby on the mainstream pop charts in both America and the UK. Candy Girl is essentially a vintage Jackson 5 song updated for 1983. Instead of jazz crusader Wilton Felder on bass, it was a then cutting edge synthesizer. And there was even a little rap thrown in for good measure. And you can also see the influence of the J5 in New Edition's performance style. They performed high energy coordinated dance moves from behind a row of mic stands. But the biggest difference between New Edition and the J5 
is that New Edition did not bother to even pretend to play instruments. There was no need. New Edition was all killer, no filler. The group parted ways with Star after this first album and tour. The possibly apocryphal story that, you know, in all fairness, the general refutes is that they received a grand total of $1.87 for their troubles. And whatever happened, they said bye-bye-bye to the general. And now Star may have had the golden touch, but New Edition would do just fine without him. 1984's post-Star Cool It Now is one of New Edition's most fondly remembered songs. Well, at least by me. would continue delivering hits for years to come even after kicking charismatic bad boy Bobby Brown out of the group. Subunit Belle, Biv, and DeVoe went quadruple platinum with 1990's Poison. Michael Bivens helped launch Boys to Men, which I won't get into it, but the 90s, oh my gosh, there was just like the sea of really great, great vocal groups, including Boys to Men and Color Me Bad. Uh, but And Bobby Brown was, you know, obviously Bobby Brown. But New Edition played on Soul Train, not The Tonight Show. They were breathlessly promoted and covered by Right On, not Tiger Beat. So with his New Edition experience in hand, Maurice Starr decided to try again. And this time, he would be aiming for Barry Gordy's Young America. the General's new group could be considered the true heirs of the J5, popularizing black music and dance for white audiences. So let me set the scene for you before we hear from the five kids from Dorchester. There wasn't much in the way of pop music for kids in the early to mid-80s. Music-loving kids, like myself in this era, we listened to New Wave, and we listened to singers like Cyndi Lauper, of course, Michael Jackson. But sometimes the themes of these songs were too adult, or there was too much controversy, or too many ballads, let's be real. So we wanted something cool, but also like, you know, like for kids. And this was an untapped and growing market, and it absolutely exploded in 1987 when 15-year-old Tiffany 
went on a tour of suburban shopping malls, doing three 20-minute sets a day to growing audiences of tween fans. In the wake of Tiffany came Debbie Gibson, a young Kylie Minogue, family band The Jets, Weird Al, an absolute boom for television's Kids Incorporated. MTV debuted Club MTV, based on the old American bandstand, and Disney revived the Mickey Mouse Club. And keep an eye on some of these new Mouseketeers. Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, J.C. Chazé. Hmm sounds familiar. But let's rewind back to 1984. Okay, so New Edition kicks the general to the curb. He begins assembling his new group in 1985, starting with Donnie Wahlberg, Dangerous Bad Boy, Danny Wood, Lead Dancer, Jonathan Knight, The Gentle Older Brother, and Jordan Knight, The Barat-Tailed, Sparkling-Eyed Dreamboat, and then the baby of the group, The Secret Weapon, the absolutely adorable, blonde, blue-eyed Joey McIntyre. So a little background knowledge of Boston is useful here. Because of the school busing laws intended to help reduce segregation in the city, the original four members of the group that would become New Kids on the Block, Donnie, Danny, and brothers Jordan and Jonathan, were all bused from their Irish Catholic neighborhood to a school in the Black neighborhood. So they liked and consumed the music of their peers in school, which happened to be groups like New Edition instead of like Twisted Sister. And I want to emphasize this because the new kids are often called the Osmonds to New Edition's Jackson 5, and I really don't think that's fair. It's more like the new kids were the Jackson 5 to New Edition's The Silvers, and I mean no disrespect to the Osmonds when I say they weren't really a blue-eyed soul act at heart. The Osmonds are incredible entertainers, they're professionals, they can do whatever genre you throw at them. The new kids really did grow up listening to R&B. So anyway, after Star casts his final new kid, his Michael Jackson, the then 12-year-old Joey, the group rehearses and hustles and releases their first album in 1986, aimed directly at the new edition market. This group's first single, Be My Girl, is a charming tween slow jam ballad that managed to get to number 90 on the hot black singles chart. But second single, Stop and Girl, a close cousin to the retro Jackson 5 sound of Candy Girl, only much lamer and featuring a super lame dad rock guitar solo, vanished, as did the album. The new kids needed a new sound. For their second album, they would have a more contemporary, cooler sound perfectly capturing the rock-flavored R&B that was really big at the time, and with a super cool title to match, Hangin' Tough. <laughs> to, <put laughs> to put it in context, this was the era of Whitney Houston's How Will I Know, Prince's Kiss, Jody Watley's Looking for a New Love,
as luck would have it, the album's first single, the devastatingly sugar-sweet Please Don't Go Girl, released April 16, 1988, maintained just a hint of that retro Jackson 5 sound for flavor, but it crossed over to pop radio. And that summer, the new kids supported Tiffany on another mall tour. And by the fall, when the second single from the album came out, the infectious, you've got the right stuff, the kids were a genuine phenomenon. suburban mall audiences had spoken. The new kids would ride their wave of boy band popularity for a few years, but despite being a talented blue-eyed soul act at heart, they were ultimately unable to pivot away from their bubblegum image, and they disbanded in 1994 amid declining sales. Part of the problem was that the new kids were never really taken seriously as a pop act. Critics were extremely disdainful of what they saw as garbage teeny bopper music, refusing to look past the marketing and screaming tween fans to the very solid performance group underneath the hype. They were also seen as deeply inauthentic because they were white men doing R&B. Weird Al captured the mood of the era perfectly with his parody of The Right Stuff titled The White Stuff. The white stuff, baby. In the middle of an Oreo I love the white stuff, baby It's the most delicious thing I know I've had a zillion or two in my life They're so right My teeth are all right and clear through But who cares? What else am I supposed to do? Trust me, early 90s middle school kids thought this was an epic burn. And another factor is that the mood around pop music curdled after the Millie Vanilli lip-syncing scandal in 1990. After months of rumors, Millie Vanilli finally admitted that they did not sing their own songs, like at all. And the floodgates opened on a sea of opportunistic class action lawsuits alleging consumer fraud, especially after Cook County, Illinois awarded damages to Millie Vanilli fans. The new kids on the block, already figures of ridicule among serious music fans, had a target on their backs. 
and the hammer dropped in early 92 when they were publicly accused of not only lip-syncing, but of not even providing their own vocals on the recordings. And while it's certainly possible, if not extremely likely, that there were some additional vocals recorded by studio ringers to help sweeten and fill out their harmonies, there's nothing remotely unusual or deceptive about that practice. And I don't think there's any doubt that the main vocal tracks were all done by the members themselves. But the seeds of doubt had been planted. The new kids, then on tour in Australia, rushed back to LA to make an emergency appearance on the Arsenio Hall show to do damage control, singing ballad, If You Go Away, completely live with no support track. But it was too late. Like the monkeys before them, the new kids were made scapegoat for using the same industry best practices as their peers. The new kids were no more or less fake than any other vocal act, but they couldn't escape the smear of inauthenticity. In any case, the tide was turning. Rock bands were about to come back in a big way. Grunge was bubbling under in America, as was the movement about to become Britpop in the UK. And the singing and dancing of the new kids was quickly becoming deeply unfashionable. It would be years before their style returned, and when it did, it would take on a completely different form. American teen magazines had tried to make the UK's Take That, assembled in 1990 as Madchester's answer to NKOTB, a thing. But they made about as little impression in America as Menudo had done a decade earlier. While one could make the argument for Nirvana as a boy band, and I can certainly testify firsthand to seeing Kurt Cobain's smoldering good looks from the inside of quite a few girls' lockers. I'm going to take this narrative in a different direction. While the new kids were imploding in 1992, inspired by the huge amounts of money that they were pulling in, Florida blip magnet and eventual convict Lou Pearlman decided to put together his own boy band based out of Orlando. How hard could it be, he'd asked himself. Pearlman combined local teens, Howie Duro and AJ McLean, with a young kid named Nick Carter, who had turned down a role on the new Mickey Mouse Club, added in the ambitious and hardworking Kevin Richardson, a country boy from Kentucky, and his golden-voiced cousin, Brian Luttrell. Pearlman put the new group under the guidance of former New Kids tour manager, Johnny Wright, and gave them a name. They would be known as... The Backstreet Boys.
Perhaps sensing that the dour American grudge and gangster rap era would not last forever, a forward-thinking executive at Vibe Records encouraged the label to sign the act in 1994 and sent them to Sweden to work with up-and-coming pop songwriter slash producer Dennis Pop and his young apprentice Max Martin. Something to keep in mind is that while American lawyers were making bank on class action lawsuits against, you know, actually enjoyable pop music. Over in Europe, the good times had never stopped. UK boy bands Take That and E17 were still topping charts across Europe in the early 90s, not to mention pop groups like Sweden's Rednecks and Ace of Bass, who had had a blockbuster hit with Dennis Pop. So it made sense for Jive to send this promising young vocal group overseas where the market was ready for them. The BSB's first single, co-written by Dennis Pop and Max Martin, was the supremely catchy We've Got It Going On, and it set the classic Backstreet sound. Eurobeat disco overlaid with their pitch-perfect R&B harmonies. As soon as you hear that ascending, nah, you no, it's Backstreet. If you really wanna see what we can do for you, I'm the crazy one, no static. Sing it. Ah, on, cause Backstreet's got it. Come on now, everybody. We've got it going on for years. Jam on, cause Backstreet's got it. Come on now, everybody. We've got it going on for years. And with the popularization of wireless microphones for live sound, Backstreet were able to ditch the mic stands of the previous generations and just like utilize the entire stage, bringing in all sorts of new formation style and dance moves to their performances. Their sound and their performance style were like nothing American or European audiences had seen. With their good looks, even better vocals, and exciting dance performances, the Backstreet Boys quickly won over audiences in Germany. Austria, Switzerland, then France, who passed the media on to Montreal, and before too long, teens across the border in New York were calling up the radio and asking, who is this new group? And then, a stroke of good luck. Just as Tiffany's 1987 mall tour led the way for NKOTB, a UK girl group called the Spice Girls brought pop music back to America in 1997 with an earwormy bubblegum mega-hit called wannabe I'll tell you what I want what I really really want so tell me what you want what you really really want I wanna I wanna I wanna I wanna I wanna really 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 wanna say cause it's if you wanna be my lover you gotta get with my friends make it last forever friendship never ends the song unleashed a flood of teen pop in its wake including Backstreet Boys TD Bopper Brother Band Hanson the White Boys to Men 98 Degrees 
And almost overnight, magazines like Tiger Beat kicked cover boy staples like Jonathan Taylor Thomas off of their covers in favor of this new crop of hunks. And the hits didn't stop there. MTV launched teen pop video countdown show TRL, hosted by Carson Daly in 1998, and was soon counting down hits from multiple girl groups, including Destiny's Child, Rising Star Britney Spears, as well as a boy band named NSYNC. And as good as the Backstreet Boys are, and they are good, it's NSYNC that, like Duran Duran before them, represent the artistic high watermark of the genre. They were pop visionaries, but the world they crafted wasn't the exotic foreign adventures of Duran Duran. It was a meta-fantasy world of celebrity itself. So InSync was formed in 1995 thanks to the hustle of acapella enthusiast Chris Kirkpatrick, who had just missed the cut for Backstreet. He brought in the ambitious, handsome, talented ex-Musketeers Justin Timberlake and J.C. Chasse, followed by Chris's affable buddy Joey Fatone, who, working at, <laughs> who was working as the uh, Wolfman at Universal Studios. And then the last piece of the puzzle... The baby, Lance Bass, a quiet, doe-eyed show choir kid from small-town Mississippi with a bad haircut and a surprisingly deep voice. Much like the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC was put through boy band boot camp in Orlando and then shipped over to Europe to work with Dennis Pop. The group released a pair of very Backstreet singles in Europe. I Want You Back and Tearing Up My Heart. And then they released them in America in the wake of the teen pop wave. They were marketed as, you know, kind of Backstreet Junior for all intents and purposes. And that wasn't a mistake. Perlman had infamously supported the creation of InSync primarily to provide a rival group for the Backstreet Boys, a Pepsi to their Coke. The idea was partially that, as manager Johnny Wright explained in a 1998 interview with Rolling Stone magazine, quote, we were going to turn Orlando into the next Motown but we were going to call it Snowtown, unquote, and partially in a time-honored tactic to help generate fan engagement. And it worked. A look at the chart of number ones on MTV's Total Request Live shows a furious battle between the two groups, with the number one slot flipping back and forth from BSB to NSYNC from TRL's beginning in September 1998 until that streak was broken by Korn's Freak on a Leash, February 25th, 1999. The animosity between the two groups was quite real at the time for various reasons. BSB felt like NSYNC was trying to usurp their position, snatching away opportunities such as the 1998 Disney Channel special concert, which helped break NSYNC to American audiences. The special had originally been offered to the Backstreet Boys, but it still stung to see NSYNC walking away with the glory. It was once the two groups started speaking to each other at an infamous... <laughs> an, inf <laughs> an infamous meeting known as the McDonald's Summit that all the pieces fell into place and both groups realized that, yes, that classic boy band complaint 
neither of them was getting paid. NSYNC, in one of the ballsiest boy band business moves, either before or since, managed to break their contract with Lou Pearlman, signed to a different label as a group with their name, and released a pop masterpiece, no strings attached. Backstreet was not as lucky legally, although they did manage to put out a classic album that year, Millennium, which features one of the best known and most beloved songs in the entire world. I want it that way. You are my fire, the one desire. was still very much in the Max Martin Swedish pop wheelhouse. When No Strings Attached was released on March 21st, 2000, NSYNC was going forward with their own sound, something much more American. Although the two lead singles, Bye 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 and It's Gonna Be Me, were both from the Max Martin team. The rest was an interesting and very different mix of styles. JC contributed whimsical pop soundscapes like NSYNC member favorite, Digital Get Down, and this podcaster's personal favorite, Space Cowboy, featuring the late Left Eye Lopez, as well as the album's title track, No Strings Attached, whose puppet theme were inspired by Chris Kirkpatrick's love of campy 70s show, The Thunderbirds. I see the things he does to you, all the pain that he puts you through, and I see what's really going on. also included an old Teddy Riley track, a smooth R&B jam written by the group's touring band, as well as just a straight acapella number. No Strings Attached was a blockbuster, and it marks the pinnacle of both the teen pop wave and the boy band craze. While the Backstreet Boys faded in popularity as the new millennium began, the BSB project has continued in various forms, including a pre-pandemic Vegas residency that I very much wish I could have attended. And they are still putting out great material, although not perhaps targeted at the American market. I got mixed emotions Did I finally find me a river that could lead me out to the ocean 
Cause I've only ever known the kind of love that leaves you battered and broken So forgive me for my mixed emotions Yeah, yeah I'm not that kind of person who can fall in and out of love with you That's not what love's supposed to do Sync released one more excellent album, Celebrity, which I mentioned at the top of the episode, before shattering when Justin Timberlake launched himself into solo stardom with a banger of an album called Justified. Lou Pearlman, on the other hand, discovered that you couldn't just put a bunch of cute guys together and make them into a successful band. In 2000, in a now very painful to watch reality show called Making the Band, Pearlman tried to pull what McLaren did with the great rock and roll swindle, making himself into the store. The band that resulted from the show, O-Town, was popular with tweens at the time, much as the Pistols' Friggin' and the Ringin' had been. But the creative spark was missing. The era of the American singing and dancing boy band was fading, and this time it was gone for good. As the new millennium marched on, a new genre was getting mixed in with the bubblegum teen pop and, uh, corn. Pop punk. One of the early vanguard leading the pop punk wave was a band called Blink-182. Their videos rarely won out against those of NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, but as those vocal groups fell out of fashion, it would be Blink-182 and pop-punk groups like Sum 41, Good Charlotte, who replaced them on both TRL and in the pages of magazines like Tiger Beat. Looking back, the writing was on the wall as early as the 1999 video for Blink-182's song, All the Small Things. which made a nasty mockery of groups like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Much as the New Kids on the Block has faced charges of inauthenticity and fakeness, despite being a great blue-eyed soul group, Blink-182 and pop-punk in general moved to position themselves as authentic against the then-current crop of vocal groups. And this is despite the fact that Blink-182 appeared in the same teen magazines like Bop and Tiger Beat. Their posters hung in the same, you know, middle school girls' lockers, despite the fact that singing and dancing on a professional level takes arguably at least as much talent as playing rock instruments, and that members of those pop vocal groups often contributed to the songwriting themselves, it wasn't enough to save the Snowtown groups from the label of Plastic and Fake. And so, the boy band Torch was passed along to a sea of floppy-haired emo boys with piercings and tattoos who made a game of dry-humping each other on stage. Yes, that's right. I am talking about the mid-2000s phenomenon known as Bandslash, also known as Bandom.
This is the part of the story where the boy band narrative shifts away from the music, art, stagecraft, and into fandom. Primarily this is because the post-Backstreet, post-NSYNC, post-2000s era boy bands made very little impression on mainstream culture and existed mainly in closed fandom circles. And those circles moved increasingly online or accessible through like paid cable TV. There were teen music properties with some mainstream footprint in those years like High School Musical and Glee, as well as the soundtracks to the Twilight films. But we're talking about boy bands, so just take it as read that I'm aware of Zac Efron. Back to bandom. The genre was focused around three pop-punk-come-emo groups, My Chemical Romance, Panic at the Disco, and Fallout Boy. And it represents the beginning of a big shift of boy band fans away from traditional media such as teen magazines, TV, radio, and towards online communities where they mingled with older fans and fan communities from other genres on platforms like LiveJournal and Tumblr. And I strongly suspect the boom in RPF, or real person fanfiction, much of it explicit and written about homosexual male pairings that rose from the fandoms around properties like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and television show Supernatural helped feed the communities that would become fandom. These fans were encouraged in their pursuits by both what was called stage gay at the time, that is, band members doing things like dry humping each other on stage, and fourth wall breaking interactions from the bandom members themselves, who would comment on the stories. Fans wrote their own narratives onto these bands, deepening the connection they felt with these boys with every story they read about Frerard banging. While the bandom group certainly sold a lot of CDs and had a presence in traditional platforms, especially bandom breakout star Pete Wentz, bass player for Fallout Boy, ex-husband to lip-syncing emo teen popper Ashley Simpson, their impact on popular culture and on pop music in general was pretty minimal. I was an active consumer of pop culture and pop music in this era, and while writing this script, I actually had to go look up the best-selling songs, and not a single one triggered any kind of memory for me. Bandom's biggest and lasting impact would be on boy band fandom. Meanwhile, over on the Disney Channel, the overtly Christian brother band, the Jonas Brothers, were selling purity rings and squeaky clean rock to a generation of young girls too young or not online enough for emo. One day when I came home at lunchtime, I heard a funny noise. Went out to the backyard to find out if it was one of those ratty boys. Stood there with the neighbor, called Peter, in a flat sky passer. He told me he It's a concept that can only make sense against the specific American culture war of the mid-2000s. There was a reality show, concert films, cross-promotion with super popular tweens like Taylor Swift and Hannah Montana, and even a sitcom. Oh, and albums, I guess. But the main product of the Jonas Brothers wasn't music or even teen mania. Much like the bandom groups, the main product was the guys and their story. Kevin, Joe, and Nick were all packaged and sold by their parents as aggressively normal boys next door. No flashy costumes, no dance moves, no stage gay, no theatrics, no delightful candy-colored bubblegum, and above all, no weird stuff. And this worked for a while, but as the Jonas Brothers grew older and attempted to pivot and grow their brand into a more adult one, ugh, 
extreme secondhand embarrassment reality series married to jonas is a thing um Across the pond in the UK, boy band mania, the likes of which had not been seen since the heady days of the Backstreet NSYNC rivalry, was about to bloom. Like the Jonas Brothers, One Direction were another television boy band. They were formed in 2010 by music industry veteran Simon Cowell. Out of a handful of contestants on his talent show, The X Factor, Neil Horan, Zayn Malik, Liam Payne, Harry Styles, and Louis Tomlinson. The boys were cute, charming had nice voices, and most importantly, had enough chemistry as a group to catch the attention of Great Britain's boy band fans. Despite not winning the competition, they had something more important. Momentum. They signed with Simon Cowell's record label and dove head first onto the boy band treadmill. They put out a string of bland but vaguely catchy top 40 hits, and not to damn with faint praise, but while 1D would never release anything as masterful as I Want It That Way or Bye Bye Bye, at least songs like What Makes You Beautiful or Live While We're Young have choruses you can remember and sing along to. like their country mates, the Bay City Rollers. The music and performances are by far and away the least interesting thing about One Direction. Let it be known that One Direction do not dance, nor do they wear glitzy stage costumes. The group represents the unholy merger of the reality show and, let's not be too weird, tween mania of the Jonas Brothers, with the older fans stage gay and RPF abandon. And the cherry on top of this fandom Sunday, internet voting culture. Directioners of all ages weren't just pinning posters to their bedroom walls or reblocking gifts on Tumblr. They were online whipping votes, combing videos for clues to the real relationship between the group members, writing RPF relationship manifestos and 40 chapter OT5 orgy fanfics, and also reblocking gifts and putting up posters. Where fandom was a closed ecosystem, with fan activities more or less contained to fan spaces. One Direction tore down those walls, invited everyone in to take part in previously niche fan subculture activities like shipping. The group's biggest legacy is hidden in the ship tags on the fanfic site of your choice. Harry Louie, Zane Liam, Neil Harry, Neil Zane, Liam Louie. It's one thing to have a laugh about a few thousand girls reading an erotic fanfic about you fucking your bandmate on a dedicated live journal community. It's quite another to have millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of views on innumerable YouTube videos titled things like Things That Don't Make Sense If Larry's Not Real Part 5 and Top 10 Heartbreaking Larry Moments. 1D went on hiatus at the end of 2015 and honestly, I don't blame them. Judging from the footage in the 2013 tour documentary, This Is Us, which, yes, I did watch, the members seem extremely unhappy and only minimally engaged with the music and performances. While the members have all gone on to have solo careers, the fan-created legacy of One Direction lives on. 
One Direction made the news in 2019 not because of their music, but because teen drama Euphoria aired an explicit sex scene between members Louis and Harry that was framed as a fantasy of one of the characters on the show. Louis took to Twitter to say, quote, I can categorically say that I was not contacted, nor did I approve it, unquote. And finally, finally, that leads to the final stop on this whirlwind boy band tour, BTS. The seven-member unit from South Korea who crossed over from K-pop idol subculture to become a boy band, with all of the baggage that that implies. And you can listen to my history of K-pop idol groups if you're interested in that. Short version, K-pop is an export product from Korea, and while there had been previous unsuccessful attempts to target Barry Gordy's Young America, K-pop group Wonder Girls had opened for the Jonas Brothers on tour, for example, what had developed in their wake was a large K-pop subculture, somewhat similar to something like the anime subculture or even something like the English Premier League subculture in America. News or trends would occasionally cross over to the mainstream media, but for the most part, it operates in a closed ecosystem. What happened in 2016-2017 is that fans pushed BTS out of that K-pop bubble and into the mainstream entertainment world. Despite already being in their 20s, the group was repackaged as a full-fledged boy band, and their sound pivoted away from the Big Bang-esque, hip-hop-tinged K-pop they'd been making towards tween-market-oriented One Direction, kind of bland but professional American Top 40, culminating last year with their biggest hit to date, the song they will probably be remembered for, Dynamite, which was written by a pair of songwriters best known for their work with, yes, the let's not be too weird, Jonas Brothers. As with One Direction, the fandom is by far the most interesting part of BTS in their form as an American boy band. That fandom combines everything from the One Direction fandom, especially the prominence of the older fan demographic, like the over 30 fan demographic, over 40. But with the addition of online voting and mass streaming, turned up to 11. And as I write this in early April 2021, I can still find fans fundraising, like literally, thousands of dollars a week to mass purchase dynamite which came out in the fall of last year they have been buying this song for months that is dedication um, the fandom also has institutional support from academics and journalists who rely on these fans for engagement as well as a healthy dose of online social justice activism added in but the clock is ticking down fast while idol groups can have long and lengthy careers boy bands either need to make a case for themselves as artists or make a pivot to some sort of a mainstream artistic um or make a pivot to a more uh non-boy band type band because boy bands their time is limited and on that note, we will close out this mega episode with the Backstreet Boys socially distanced version of I Want It That Way from 2020, which is accompanied by an incredibly charming video that I highly recommend you click through to watch. And <laughs> I will talk to you next time. Bye bye bye.